0: Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. again my friends welcome back to another episode we are coming up on like almost a year of having this podcast let's see I launched it at the end of October of last year so just a couple months and I'll have had this for a year which is really crazy because the time has flown by um I was thinking recently about how many episodes I've done. I guess we're in our third decade here of episodes, 30 something. Um, it's funny. One of my biggest concerns when I first started the podcast is that I wouldn't have enough people to talk to, or I wouldn't be able to find enough people to talk to, or the people I wanted to talk to wouldn't be super enthused. And aside from just maybe a couple times in the past year, um, I've, you know, worried I didn't have an episode coming up, uh, but normally it was because I just wasn't in the right place or I couldn't get internet because I was on the road. Um, But really launching an episode almost every week since I launched it has been relatively uh, stress and pain-free, which is awesome. And I hope you guys have enjoyed um, the episode so far. I realize I'm sort of talking as if it's the year anniversary, which it isn't, but um, it is almost September and uh, time goes by real fast as you get older. (laughs) Pretty crazy. I'm sure all of you remember when we were kids and like a summertime felt like an eternity. I went to sleepaway camp and the session was two and a half weeks and I swear that felt like forever. Now when I think about going somewhere for two and a half weeks, that's like a joke. Anyway, I am pretty thrilled at how the podcast has grown and evolved uh, since I launched it, and I hope you all are too. Um, One thing I do want to say, I've I've talked to so many people along this journey who say they want to launch a podcast, and I think I've told this story a couple times that from the time I said I wanted to launch a podcast to when I actually launched a podcast was about a year. Um, and in that year, I think, you know, despite my imposter syndrome and doubts, I got so annoyed by so many people saying they were going to start a podcast that didn't, that I thought like, I can't be one of those people. I've, I've said to so many people that follow me and just to our friends of mine and family that I'm going to start a podcast and I better start this fucking podcast. Um, and it's interesting to talk to other people now that I have a podcast who say they want to start a podcast And I've heard so many times, you know, one of their fears, a fear that seems to exist for almost everyone I've talked to about this, is that they're just not sure that they would have something unique to say. Like maybe uh, they've been influenced or they really appreciate the work of such and such a famous person. And they feel that a lot of what they'd be doing is reiterating. Like, so, you know, I've heard, well, so-and-so Gabor Mate uh, would say it better. So, you know, why should I take up space and time and say what I want to say? You know, what I said to that person in that specific circumstance was like, well, perhaps you're a bit more accessible than Gabor Mate. I love him, but I think there's a lot of people that this person would end up talking to, which would probably relate to him and his version of those ideas more than maybe their original source. And honestly, at the very end of the day, I really do think that we're all just regurgitating stories. Um, And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, if we think about like prehistory before we had press and podcasts and TV, you know, everything was a reiteration of a story told through a different lens and passed on and passed on and passed on. Um, and I think we need all of those voices. I've said a hundred times, like, I'm cool with everyone having a podcast. If it makes people feel less alone, that's amazing. And I think to address the fear, and I think this not only applies to podcasting, but with anything where you feel the need to express yourself in life or have the thought that someone's, someone else is going to do it or someone else has done it better or will do it better, you know if you were and people ask me this too do, you, do i su- did I suffer from that of thinking you know someone else is out there saying it better and honestly i I didn't I think the the reason one of the main reasons I started this podcast is because I truly didn't hear anyone else saying what i saying what I wanted to say and having the opinions and expressing the opinions that I really wanted to express. That's not to say I didn't have the fear of it. But that fear continually was proven to be unfounded. Like, I would I would remember finding a podcast that sort of sounded like something that I wanted to say, or, or someone would tell me about an article, like, hey, this sounds a lot like what you want to talk about. And I would get this sort of, like, pit in my stomach and fear and think, oh, fuck, like, someone got to it sooner. This year that it's taken me to start this podcast, like, someone copied me, right? There's competition. Someone else is going to do this. And it kept not being exactly... What I wanted to say—it wasn't my voice. I think the only time that we're at risk for something like that—I mean, you know, creating some sort of product is maybe different, where someone could just flat out copy you. But when it comes to your voice and your experience and your expression, if those things are coming from a from a 100% authentic place, there is no one else like you. I know that sounds a bit cliche, but there shouldn't be any concern of, you know, anyone copying you or competition if you're really doing and living the life that is authentic to only you. So for anyone that's afraid to express themselves or use their voice, I would say think more carefully about where that fear is coming from. Is the fear and the doubt actually because you have a sense that what it is you want to express or share is not your own? And if it's, You're afraid that it's just a a different version of what someone else has said. Well, maybe we need that version. Maybe we need lots of variations on a theme. Uh, Today, the interview that I'm going to share with you is with Jason Hawley, who, like, I have not gotten nervous for an interview like this in a while. So hopefully it doesn't show. I was super fangirling. Um, I really, truly respect him. He works a lot with mythology and astrology and psychology. Um, and, you know, one of the things he said at the very end, which is obviously something I knew but was a helpful reminder, is that when, you know, when we're working with mythology, we have these stories, right, and, and the stories we can find in a book. But the interpretation of those stories is very different. And we all have the ability to interpret something in a, myri- in a myriad of different ways, which is brilliant. We need that. We don't need one interpretation of a thing. We need as many interpretations as possible. You know, we we want to explore the complexity of something. We don't want to simplify something. Um, so I I do think that in any case where anyone's sort of struggling with imposter syndrome or just sort of like a lack of bravery and courage and speaking up for who you are, or what you want, or what you believe. Um, I would think more critically about where that fear is coming from. And also recognize that, you know, as I've said on this podcast so many times already, you know, one of my my, uh, favorite quotes is that courage is not the absence of fear, it's fear walking. So don't let fear of a thing tell you that it's not worth doing. In fact, the fear is probably an indication that it is worth doing and that you should do it. Um, If you guys are at all familiar with Brene Brown's work, you know, this is really what she talks about in regard to vulnerability. Uh, If the thing, you know, vulnerability is not sharing something that you think is going to land well. Vulnerability is sharing something that you're so fucking horrified to share and then want to like crawl under a bed and hide for the rest of your life after you share it. So if the fear is just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud, Then that's a fear to push through. If the fear is, I'm afraid um, someone else is saying this better, well, then I would examine really where that's coming from. It could just be that that's an excuse not to have to deal with the initial fear of I'm just afraid to be vulnerable. Or is that a legitimate fear that someone's saying it better? And if someone's saying it, if someone's truly saying it better, and you don't feel you feel like you hear your voice everywhere out there, then you probably haven't found your voice. Um, But I think we do so many things in life, I see this so often, I know I've done it, where we take something that's like a very easy excuse, like the reason I'm, let's say, not having sex with my partner is because I'm sleeping in the same room with our kids. But there's an easy solution to sleep in a different room without the kids, And so you take this really tangible, obvious thing of like, oh, yeah, well, this isn't happening because we're sleeping in the kid's room. Well, or or are you creating that excuse so that you don't have to deal with the fact that maybe if you were outside of the kid's room, you still wouldn't be having sex? And that's challenging. And, you know, um, it hurts to deal with that actual problem. So you create this like stopgap measure in the center. You can be like, oh, yeah, well, I'm not doing it like, oh, I'm not traveling because I have dogs. Well, if you really, really wanted to travel, if you really weren't afraid to travel, you could give your dogs to someone or give the dogs away, right? Like it all depends on what your priorities are, but it's so easy to create and just sort of input excuses um, into different things in our life where we're just really afraid of dealing with the actual issue. So we just put in this distraction, this easy rationalization, and we don't deal with the real thing. Um, Totally didn't plan to talk about any of that, but this is what happens when I sit in front of a mic. I just go off. (laughs) Um, Let's see. I don't really have much else to talk about, I guess. I'm back in LA for the week after a bizarre chain of events. I uh, think I maybe have mentioned this last week, but um, I was actually going to meet up with Jason Holly, who you'll hear today on the podcast in person, but things got moved around, and I didn't want to not talk to him, Uh, so we did it remotely, which is... Not as good, I have to say, as talking to someone in person. It's definitely a different experience. I definitely want to do more in person interviews where I can. Um, Having said that, I rely on you guys for that a lot. So, um, whoever follows me online, here's where I am in the world. Always feel free to shoot me an email and tell me if you know a person in any of the places I am or when I'm at home in LA for a couple months. Um, that I could get together with and talk to in person. Or even if you don't think I'm with, I'm near that person in general, obviously I could potentially uh, interview them remotely or I might be visiting that place. Um, so I would really love to hear from you, especially uh, you guys who have been listening for an extended period of time, like maybe almost a year. Um, you probably have a sense of who I like to talk to and the types of conversations I like having. So don't be afraid to reach out. This is a very strange. Uh, medium to be talking to myself in an empty room, but know that there are um, over a thousand of you listening to this podcast every week. Uh, So yeah, I'd love to hear from you to know to put a a face to a number um, and personalize this a bit. And uh, I hope to be and will be traveling around more uh in the future so that I can not only interview more people in person, uh, but also hopefully meet more of you in person as well. Because that's fun and uh it's nice. I I I feel like I I might have mentioned this already at some point, but you know, I had this narrative that I told myself and that people told me about how I was shy or uh I always told myself I was super introverted and some of that I still relate to. But especially this year after having this podcast and conversing with all of you and sort of finally relating to and meeting people that are really similar to me, I recognize that a lot of those quiet, those qualities of shyness or quietness uh, don't really exist anymore. And so maybe those characteristics about myself were just related to the types of spaces I was in and the types of people I was relating to. Uh, and now in a different situation, a different time in my life, um they really not. They don't reply anymore. You know, I I'm totally okay when I'm comfortable with people and with people that aren't afraid of me. Sort of like delving in deep, which I uh, like to do. I like to talk a lot, and I, I'm I'm not intimidated by that. I always think about um, when I was a kid. I've told this story a lot recently. That, or I'm a kid, I you know, I was in college and I was studying gender and sexuality, and I would go to some like party with adults. And they would always ask me what I studied in school. And I would just dread being asked that question because it would never be a simple answer. So I would say, oh, gender and sexuality. And these adults would say to me, like, oh, so, like, you're studying, like, what is that? Like, how to have sex? And it was like, what was I supposed to say? Like, after that question, no, actually, like, I'm examining uh, sex and gender from a cross-cultural perspective and, you know, how everything is a social construction. It's like that conversation... (laughs) would go nowhere. And sometimes I would say it just because I was frustrated and I kind of wanted to shut them up and they'd be like, well, what the? What does that mean? Yeah, like try talking to an adult who is completely clueless about the social construction of um, homosexuality. It wasn't fun. It made me feel like shit. And uh, it's a thing I've said before that I think f- to some extent I always sort of knew who I was and what I believed in and what I liked. But I didn't feel like I had a place in the world. Um, and that's a shitty feeling. Uh, and I think I carried that feeling into self-destructive tendencies to like make choices that weren't authentic to me because I didn't think I could live authentically. I didn't think I could have the life I wanted, the relationship I wanted, the career I wanted. So I did other things instead because I kept hearing the message from people, often people a lot older than me, that what I wanted was cool but unrealistic. Um, Anyway, I'm not doing that anymore, and that's why I'm here, to help you guys not do that either because life's too fucking short, and it's crazy once you give up on that idea, once you stop making excuses, and once you stop letting the fear control you everything opens up and the possibilities seem endless. So without further ado, I would love for you to hear this interview I did with Jason. Um, and briefly before that, I, I wanted to address just astrology in general. Um, I started this podcast, like I said, last fall. And it coincided with the end of an astrology pr- apprenticeship that I did. Um, and it's interesting to me because when I recorded the first few episodes of the podcast, I was in a very different place in regard to sort of my own experience and feeling uh, about astrology at the time. And then I did a, I did several episodes about astrology, which were great, actually. I um, especially really loved the one that I did. Uh, about the Pluto and Scorpio generation with Tim Holloran, really awesome guy who I respect quite a bit. And we talked about the astrological significance of the millennial generation. If that's an episode you haven't heard um, and you're interested in that, I would highly recommend it. It's intense, but us millennials are intense. So I'm sure that won't uh, scare you away. Um, But anyway, I did all these episodes about astrology. I talked about astrology and then it sort of totally disappeared from my podcast for the most part. Um, And I sort of want to briefly, before I get into this episode, explain why. And I talked about it a bit in the conversation I had with Jason. Um, But sort of culminating in the end of my astrology apprenticeship, a lot of different things happened. I think I uh, was in the astrological community more so than I had been before. So like experiencing it from the internal perspective rather than the external perspective. So like being an astrologer versus getting an astrology reading. Um, And I was, you know, made aware of a lot of, to me, what made me really uncomfortable in the community around the commodification of spirituality and belief around uh, what Jason and I talk a bit about, about like narcissistic personalities, like gurus, God complexing. I think it's a beautiful thing that there are no stringent regulations on astrology like they are in uh, psychology therapy traditional therapy. Um, but I think there are pros and cons to that, right? I think with regulation, we lose out on a bunch of things and without regulation, things can go crazy and go wild. And, um, I saw a lot of strange boundaries being crossed and I'm not even opposed to boundaries being crossed, honestly, as long as it's from coming from a healthy intention, um, and a healthy place, but that's not really what I experienced or witnessed. Um, and I also, I think the other thing that I did that I thought was troublesome and that I saw other people doing, and that honestly I see reflected so much in these apps now that everyone has, like the Pattern and CoStar, I think is another one. You know, uh, there the, the pro arguments for these types of things are like, oh, well, it introduces people to astrology who wouldn't otherwise be interested in it. Perhaps they can't afford a reading, so they're looking online. Um... And, oh, well, maybe it helps people, you know, who aren't super self-aware come to terms or see see their behavior, their um, like patterns in a way that's illuminating. And I think those are all valid points, but I still think the cons and the negatives of those types of apps really outweigh any of the positives. And I think that's because as humans, we are really, really susceptible for creating narratives about ourselves and about the world that are... Convenient And convenience doesn't have to mean positive. It could be convenient in the sense that we're really used to seeing ourselves fall into negative patterning. And so we create stories in our minds that um, help to perpetuate that. And, you know, I, I actually just yesterday uh, downloaded the pattern because I was curious about what it was. And this is an app that doesn't explicitly say it's an astrology app, but it is an astrology app. It just doesn't use any astrology language. Um, and, you know, there are some things that are said in there that are calculated based on, you know, my chart and my aspects and my synastry with someone else that, OK, like I see where you're getting that analysis from. But it's still just one of many, many, many different ways of telling a story, sort of like what I was talking about before and what I'm going to you'll hear me talk to Jason about a lot. There's a you know, the chart, as Jason likes to call it, is like a dream It's an imagination, and it's not static. It's constantly moving. So for me to talk about, let's see, my moon, which is in Libra, in any one kind of a way, is even at one time, right? Like to talk about how my moon is expressed or how I feel into that right now, there's so many things to be said about it. And some of them are contradictory. Many of them are. There's no way that I can tell you what my moon means to me and how I experience it in a paragraph. Or a couple of sentences, as these apps try to do. It's so fucking complex, and the more I learn about myself, the more complex it becomes. And not only that, but as I move through my life, as I grow, and as I evolve, and as I get older, it changes. It changes. So an expression of my moon before is not my, the expression of my moon moving forward. And I think what happened with me, the sort of disillusionment that I went through with astrology, what I've come to understand is that it wasn't disillusionment with astrology in general. It was just with a certain or a certain many types of doing astrology. And where I've landed is somewhere uh, that I think is quite close to how Jason uses it and something that I'm really comfortable with now and something that's far more creative and interpretive and often... Um, is harmed by using words, you know? I I feel into astrology and into my chart in a very experiential way, you know, through energy and through music and through sights and sounds. And it's sort of, it's like a theatrical experience. And that's very hard to translate, obviously, into an app. Um, So you know, I, I think it's interesting. And I, I think I talked to, uh, Mike, uh, Brancatelli, Mike Adelic on a couple episodes ago about disillusionment that he, you know, he went through this a lot, um, in regard to psychedelics. Um, and it's something I hope to return to and talk about a lot, because I think there's two things that can happen when something like that happens, right? Like you find, you thought you were a Leo your whole life and you identified with that story. And then you found out you're a Virgo and you're like, fuck, like, what does that mean? Like, Hopefully, it makes you realize how easy it is to create your own projected narratives onto yourself. Um, But what I hope that eventually leads people to is not the giving up on faith or belief, whatever that is for you, belief in any sort of larger thing that's happening in the world. My hope is that people don't give up on it but my hope is that they also don't continue on the same path that they were before. So they use that sort of experience to teach them more about themselves, right? Their own, uh, whatever they are projecting onto it, whatever someone else might be projecting onto them, um, and find a new way to have that belief. I mean, if it's a circumstance that really makes you not want to believe, then fine. But I found it really valuable to sort of be kicked off, uh, the soapbox and find my way back onto a new one. Not the same one, not in making excuses to get back to the place I was before, but to say, Hey, I think I was kicked off that soapbox for a reason. Maybe the way I was trying to use that tool or express that thing wasn't working anymore. And so, but I don't, but I don't feel like it's wrong. I actually just feel like I'm grateful that happened because it was a lesson. So that's sort of where I've been for the past almost year with astrology and very much where I am. I, I, when I did my astrology apprenticeship, I never actually wanted to do readings or become a quote unquote astrologer. I just wanted to sort of do it for my own, um, self-exploration, which worked wonderfully and still does. Um, but I still really enjoy astrology, especially in a creative experiential way, um, And I don't know what that looks like in the future, but I find the connection that I have to the universe through uh, the planets and the sky is really beautiful and um, continues to teach me things and help me see new things in a new way. I mean, honestly, where I use astrology the most now is like a thing happens in my life. Let's say I have an argument with someone or um, you know, the van breaks down on my trip. And I look to the chart not to say, oh, this happened because Mercury was in retrograde. I look at it and see what the aspects are so it can teach me more about the archetype of the thing that happened. So like, I'm really upset today. I'm feeling like shit. I look to the chart and see what characters, what feelings, what archetypes are showing up. And then I use that to learn more about what it, what experience I have, not that thing is happening in the sky and that's why I feel bad. No, I feel bad because of what's happening here on earth in my life, because of my past, my choices, and just random occurrences. And I look to the sky as a mirror to give me more information. I think anybody ever that's using astrology or any type of belief system To make excuses to not delve deeper into a thing or feel the grief of a thing or feel the pain or the joy of a thing, you're doing it wrong. And I don't want to do that. And I don't want to teach anyone else to do that. And I want to, as much as I can, create and develop a way of doing astrology that I feel like is as beneficial as it possibly could be. So I'm still in that place. I'm still in that process. And, um, Jason is honestly one of the few people in the traditional astrology community who I feel like is doing something like that, who I really respect. Not the only one, but one of the few. So all that to say, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, As a reminder, if you want to support the show, Uh, Honestly, the best thing you could do is send it to your friends. Tell your friends about it. If there's an episode you think they would enjoy, share it with them. What you can do right now, that literally takes two seconds, if not less, is go into your podcast app, which you all are on right now because you're listening to me speak, and uh, hit five stars. That's it when you review the show. You can also leave a uh, a text review, like write something, but you don't have to. You can just... Hit subscribe and leave five stars, and both of those things. Honestly, it's not for my ego. It helps the podcast show up in search results, um, and it it helps other people feel confident to listen to the show because they see that there are a lot of listeners and that people have reviewed it positively. And I never ever set out with this podcast to make money. You can donate money on Patreon.com, which is super helpful. Um, and eventually I'm going to have to address the fact that I am not making very much money in my life, but I have faith that'll figure itself out somehow. Um, but really the biggest motivation for me was just that I wanted to reach as many people as possible and to prevent situations like I went through in my late twenties where I felt super fucking alone and didn't know where to turn and couldn't find a community that I resonated with. So I don't want that to happen to anyone else. I, I want to use, I want me and whomever else has a podcast or a platform to help prevent anyone from feeling alone because that can create all sorts of negative effects in terms of how they decide to live their life or end their life. So please share with your friends. That's honestly the most valuable to me. Um, appreciate you all. I hope you enjoy this episode with Jason and I will catch you on the other end. All right. So I am here at least virtually with Jason Holly, <laughs> Um, and I have to say like, I, I'm such a Leo. I would rarely ever admit this, but I'm like super, I was like super nervous for this today because I feel like you're one of my, like most, I'm most excited to talk to you on this podcast and really respect oh,
1: Thank you. you. All
0: right. So, um, yeah i'd love to start uh when i sort of found your work i only relatively recently found astrology within the past few years um Mm. and i feel like when i i think i like saw one of your webinars and then downloaded literally every single one of them because it felt like finally all these pieces came together for me Mm. i think in regard to like these arbitrary characteristics of planets and signs suddenly realizing that they're connected to story and that like that's where Mm -hmm. the like you know um, arbitrariness sort of comes from um and that made a lot of sense to me so um ever since then I've I've really sort of respected what you do and I also um I think had my first successful therapeutic experience simultaneous defining astrology and felt like those things merged Mm -hmm. so well Um, Mm
1: -hmm. yeah
0: so I guess to start, if you want to talk a little bit about your journey with both, I guess, both astrology and psychology and sort of like the decision to merge the two. And was that conscious or just sort of. Together. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, actually, for me, it starts with astrology um, because I was born into a family that was astrologically fluent. So like like when I was born, my chart was done right then (laughs) Uh, by, you know, the neighborhood astrologer. I I grew up in Appalachia. And so, um, it was, uh, you know, kind of a folk astrology, you know, like you, like the same kind of thing, like where you get a feeling in your knee and the storms are coming, you know, it's that kind of um, thing. And so my, my maternal family, which was like my mother, her mother, her mother, her mother, like it was like that strand. They, um, were very um, connected in that world. And so yeah, not professional, like they didn't uh, practice. My, my great-great-grandmother was a tea leaf reader and people did come to her for readings. But otherwise, it was just like the language in our family. And then when I was in my teens, I discovered a lot of astrology books that were sort of hidden away uh, in my mother's house. Um, and then that's when I w- kind of went much deeper with it myself and, you know, started to do... Uh, readings for people and teach astrology stuff and like just basic stuff um way back then and so um my therapeutic piece didn't really come in and so i've done a lot of my own healing work in therapy um and then came out here to san Fe after coming here for some intensive trauma work of my own my own life um, and i met a lot of the therapists who were part of that um the treatment center where I was, I was sort of in an inpatient center for a few months. And um, the therapists who were there really felt like my tribe of therapists. I just kind of felt like these people are doing something that I belong with. And so I went to a really small school here called Southwestern College, which is a transpersonally focused grad school uh, for counseling and art therapy. And so, um, so really astrology came in right from the beginning, you know, even in my practicum, I was using astrology with clients and, um, and it's just kind of been woven through all the way because astrology for me is just like a way of seeing life. It's, it's kind of very integrated, you know, all over the place. Um, and uh, and so that's kind of how they've come together for me. Uh, cool. You know, in that journey, yeah,
0: yeah. I heard you say somewhere. I think that you felt or referred to yourself or saw yourself as like a therapist first and an astrologer second. Does that still play out? And like, what is that distinction for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great thank you. That's really nice thing to think about. I because I I think the reason I think about it that way is just I think my um primary interest is in kind of keeping the story going in, in life, keeping the myths playing through. You know, I, I'm very allied to Hermes, you know, Mercury, who always showed up whenever a story was stuck. You know, that's kind of when he showed up and kind of did something that just would get it moving again, like the flow of Eros and life and um, and so I think really as astrologers and as therapists, we do that, um, for sure. But I, I, th- I think that, um, my work just feels really grounded in the, in the encounter between two people and, um, and, uh, and astrology, like, like a lot of times people ask, you know, well, what does it mean to do a therapy and astrology together? Like what actually happens in the room, you know? And, um, I have started to think about it as like the chart, um as almost like the chart of the night sky really, which the chart is you know, showing us. And um I started to think about that as like a, you know, a wise elder in the room, you know, who you regularly, you and the client or you or the client, you know, go to from time to time to uh, you know, especially when there's something you need you need to understand in a deeper way or you want a different frame or different lens on it. Um or if something's really vexing you or if I'm feeling really vexed with a client, I find consulting the chart is helpful. And the way I think about it, it's just like if you were in a village setting in, a, in an indigenous culture or an older culture, you know, if you go to the elder, you take your problem there, they're usually not going to give you like a daytime linear answer, like, here's what you need to do. If, um, they tell you a story. And And then that story activates your imagination about how to respond to your life. And that's totally what I think a chart does. You know, you go to the night sky, you go to the chart together or alone, and you hear stories and those stories activate mine and the client's imagination and take us in new directions that we might not have gone otherwise. Um, And we don't only go there when we have a problem. Sometimes we just go because we want another story. You know, we want some more um, enrichment from that world. So Um, so that's kind of the, um, the way that it's just kind of always woven in for me with that, uh, material. And so I, I do remember saying that, and I did used to say that a lot about therapists first, astrologers second, I think at this point they don't feel separate. You know what I mean? It's, um, they feel like, um, me showing up in this, I, I think so many of us who do this types of work are, um at a point in the culture where we don't really have names for what we do, you know, we're, we're, we're bridging. It's so transdisciplinary in so many different ways. It's a little bit like um, the gender binary and how unhelpful it is to so many of us point, you know, it's, there's just so many um, artifacts of a different way of thinking that we're still kind of finding our own way to naming what we do, but that's the best I can say. Right. So to me now it's, they they feel the same.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And I I think too like the therapeutic process because it is often maybe more long term than like a traditional astrology reading, and because I feel like you use story as mm-hmm. such a prominent part of your astrology that it's like those two things are just sort of working yes, hand in hand. yeah, yeah, seamlessly.
1: Yeah.
0: No, yeah. and they don't have
1: these um problems. Also, is it okay? I Like one of the things that um. I know it comes up for some people It used to about therapy and astrology, Well, you don't want to get like characterized by your chart. You don't want your therapist to kind of like lock you in to some idea they have about your chart. But I don't feel that my work is vulnerable to that in the same way because, because to me, when I'm reading a chart, I'm reading it with the person, not at the person, you know, like we're, we're co-creating meaning together. Uh, whether we're doing that in the therapy about, about life or whether we're doing that on the chart about the symbols it's all very much a relationally embedded experience. Like I don't, I really don't believe that I know more than the client does. I, I, I just don't believe that. And and um, and it, and so I, I think there's a way of working with astrology that's not about, here's what your chart means, you know? It's more about, as you said, storytelling. It's more about, here's some more stories and how do we kind of um, wander through the stories together? And so it, it sort of takes out the hierarchical thing about your chart is going to tell me who you are. And now I really know. And I have seen that done, you know, in astrological therapeutic context where the, the, the astrologer or the therapist astrologer feels like they have privileged knowledge as a result of having the chart. And um, I don't buy it at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. I feel the same way. And it's funny to talk to people who aren't super familiar with astrology because it's like, I think there is such an ingrained understanding that like astrology is that we're a projection of something going on elsewhere that we have no control. And mm -hmm. I guess I sort of see it as the inverse of that. It's like, there's things going on. And if I need more information or context, I look in the mirror in a way. Right.
1: In the mirror. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, I also heard, I wanted to ask you this. So, and I briefly mentioned this in the email that I wrote to you. um, And I'm going to sort of use this episode as like to update my audience on my astrological journey. And I wonder if this was different for you because you grew up with astrology um, and what you think the distinction is for people that sort of just found it. Like I heard you talk about how after a while you found out that you were a cancer rising instead of a Leo rising. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if that like jolted you at all in regard to like the stories you told about yourself or the, Mm -hmm. the truth of astrology in any way. And I feel like I've gone through several, um, like disillusionments (laughs) around Mm -hmm. this where I've like been like, Oh, okay. That's my own story that I'm projecting. Um, and I'm just going to sort of like use that and integrate it and move on and not necessarily reject it outright. But do you, mm-hmm. uh, what is your, ex- have you had that sort of disillusionment as well? Do you continue to have it? And-
1: um, yeah, if you mean like, um, where I've gotten kind of invested in a particular story about myself that has yeah. supported me,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the vulnerability, right? I mean, like we can, we can, uh, we can see anything we want in there. Um, and even if you don't have the wrong rising sign, (laughs) I I think, and you know, when I, when I made that Leo cancer discovery, I felt a huge amount of relief actually, because Mm. my family definitely did have the Leo rising story very strongly about me. And I, and I, (laughs) um, I think I was trying to live into that, right. There's a certain fabulousness that you should have (laughs) as a Leo rising, Yeah. Uh, I didn't feel in touch with it at all. And you know, no kidding, because you know, I'm Saturn in Cancer, all right on the ascendant, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's that was not my first instinct is not to be uh, you know, Leonon. Um, but uh and so for me it was like that particular <clears throat> moment happened to be relief. But to your point, I yeah, I I think that um One of the biggest ways that I keep on waking up to my own chart and to deeper realities and stories is that my tendency is to look, for instance, to hard aspects. I I almost always, that's where I'm drawn in a chart, you know, Uh, so to squares and and oppositions and so on. And so even in my own chart, uh, it's like I'll have this narrative of all the hard parts of it and then be reminded, oh, there's this nice sun Jupiter trying to, there's some other stuff going on, um, which is uh you know in its own way kind of uh, interruptive you know I think I think it interrupts different stories and, and that's kind of my, my interest is like so I see astrology as so improvisational you know like it's an improvisational art where you and the and the cosmos are in this dialogue and it just feels like it's it's um things will emerge out of that at different moments that are right for the moment you know like that's kind of like a lot of us I, you probably know this experience too like when you see someone after not seeing them for six months and they come in and say, well, you told me this, this, and this about my chart. And I'm kind of looking at the chart and I'm like, what? what? <laughs> I said, well, I, I, I don't see that at all today, you know? And um, I feel like that's not an indication of a lack of consistency on me or, you know, whatever. I think I'm just really alive to the eros of the moment. And we're going to see what we see in that moment, you know? So that's how I kind of make sense of those course corrections that a lot of us have with our charts. I mean, you know, it, it's a common story, actually, that somehow you saw something that literally wasn't where it was in the sky. Um, and to me, it's, um, I think, I think of it as much more spontaneous improvisation in the moment. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah and I, totally, I feel yeah. like to me it works well with the whole story piece that like, it is not static, that it's constantly mm-hmm. evolving. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's amazing to me, even in the few years that I've been like studying it, that like all of those, all of those versions and iterations were correct. It's just that they were correct at different times.
1: They were correct (laughs) for the given moment. They were ready to see in that moment. You know, one of my favorite ways of thinking about, um, the art of interpretation in therapeutic or astrology settings is that. I think we're at our best moment when we're sort of like really mirroring to that person or, or for ourselves, really receiving a certain time that, like, first you're sort of really mirroring what I can see right now. Like, you're helping me, you're helping me know that what I see is, is making sense. You're validating me in that. Um, but then maybe you're showing me like a little bit past the edge of what I've been able to see so far. And that to me is like the golden zone of, of interpretive work, like where you're, it, they used to call it like an experience near interpretation. So in other words, you're really resonating with what the person is seeing right now and they really can feel you feeling them and, you know, seeing with them. And then you're offering a little bit of past that horizon of like, oh, what about this or what might this be? And then their eye can look into that and if that's what they see or if they see something different, you're, you're, you're beginning to be in this really creative Edge zone of how how you're both seeing and and to me both the therapist or astrologer and client are both um, developing their sight. I mean you know so often I feel like um, it's funny you know like with um, with dating you know I always ask people for their chart stuff you know and and they're always like well you know I I I'm not just that and I'm like no 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 I'm not asking you this so that I can figure out who you are. I'm asking you this because this is one of my favorite ways to learn astrology is to yeah. <laughs> be who you are and just watch how that shows me new things about these symbols. And I really mean that. I, I really think I, I'm not so much like, Oh, you're this. And now that tells me everything. It's very much the opposite. It's like this constant learning process that we're in together, you know, and with our clients, I think also, if we're embracing that and really showing up that way. Like let's learn this more together I mean, it's just mind it's amazing what can happen. And the client's creativity becomes part of how you become a better astrologer, like how they, what they see.
0: Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause I feel like there's such a stigma and taboo around and, and obviously partially rightfully so around like the projection of the therapist or the healer or the astrologer, right. That like they're coming from their own perspective and we need to be super oh, yes. conscious and aware of that as to not, you know, sort of alter the story. Um, and, and I feel like the way that I've heard you talk about like the therapeutic relationship is to be conscious of that, but to like, not, um, stigmatize it or, you know, just to sort of like use it as a tool almost.
1: Totally. Yes. Because, because the, the attempts for objectivity cannot be, I mean, I, I don't know that, uh, how, how, how would we strive for objectivity? Uh, we're embedded creatures, you know, we're, we're in our own context and, And so, yes, exactly. I feel like being conscious of that reality is super important. And and also, really, I think when people first come to work with me, sometimes they have been trained in a cultural model of therapy or astrology that is sort of like, I have something they need or I'm going to give them some perspective or some, you know, and so a lot of, I think, very early on, there's a lot that's going on, even if it's not being stated, just in, in the way I'm engaging that is trying to communicate like we are co-creating this entire experience. And, um, and that way then I don't really worry that when I offer something, it's going to have this huge weight because Jason said so. Um, I, I, I think that it can, and I have to really be aware that that still can, you know, I think sometimes astrologers or therapists are not aware of just how impactful our words can be because people do come in giving us a lot of authority. But if, if we're really, really, really working hard at undermining that tendency and and getting really human and relational and real. um, Then I think offering something from my perspective is nothing more than offering something from my perspective. It's sort of saying, you know, here's what I'm seeing. And and there's a way of offering that that's much more about a question or what does that make you think of, or where do you go when I say that versus, you know, here's the story and here's what it means. Um, So yeah, I, I, I don't try to be a blank slate or to, um yeah get too worried about about my projections influencing the person um because i i think i'm truly going for dialogue and i and i believe i'm achieving i do think there's a you know as i talk about it right now i think oh yeah well you know that's nice but, (laughs) but let's be real like you are coming in with more power or not not more power but more investiture of authority and um so it is tricky. I don't feel like I figured it out, you know, but that, I, I like that. Uh, it's very nice to talk with you about it because I can tell you are really engaging with what I've been trying to say, too, which is um, there's a way to creatively make use of that field rather than just say, oh, my gosh, we have got to like clear all projection and clear all make it all out of the way. And it's like, no, I mean, you and this other person came together in this moment with all your context, cl- cl- you know, <laughs> colliding into each other. And the question is, how can you creatively collide? You, you don't get to not collide. I mean, uh, and that's the worst readings I've ever had are with astrologers who really think they are free of projecting, free of of their um, context and that they're just offering a straight up perspective of the chart. Um, I have never loved the reading like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so nuanced. I I, uh, I think because I've had a lot of experiences like in terms of relationships and power and like eros within the therapeutic environment. And I, it's at this, it's funny, I had a therapist for a while and I remember saying something to her, like, I wish that this uh, reality that like therapists or, or clients that there's this like sexual tension or that sometimes that turns Mm -hmm. into something greater. Like I wish that were talked about more because Mm -hmm. I feel like in conventional, like, I don't know, regular uh spaces it's not And she's like well you should like join me in a room with my therapist friends like we talk about it all the time (laughs) Um, but i just i it it's to like accept i feel like to reject that reality that there is power Mm -hmm. or sex or um psychological projection doesn't Mm -hmm. allow us to actually like work with it in a constructive way and 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 what i think also like what a terrible thing to do to like. Oh no, you're you know, you don't actually feel that. It's just um, what's that word where like oh, transference. Um, oh yes,
1: yes, yes. Right. This isn't right. Uh huh. This is just a, this is just your transference.
0: Yeah. 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 Can you allow? What do you feel about that? Like that whole. Because for me, wow. I feel like there's a negation there of like what you're experiencing isn't real, and you're just like transferring a prior childhood yes. trauma to this reality. Right.
1: I mean, I think that the notion of the language of transference, countertransference, like, like it's, it's so revealing of how impoverished our modern psychology is that the way that a relationship between therapist and client is talked about is by using the words transference and countertransference. I mean, that, that for a long time was the only language being used to describe interactions and like feelings and thoughts towards each other, which is, which is like, it basically kind of comes out of almost like that Newtonian model of reality where everybody's in a vacuum and like the therapist is over here in this vacuum and they're operating on the client, you know, uh, and, and, and it's not intersubjective. Like it doesn't acknowledge that you're in a relationship from the minute that the person calls you or emails you, the relational field is constellated. And if we only describe it in terms of transference, we're just, we're just like minimizing all the richness of the relational encounter. Um, and so, I think that that was really, that language was really developed. This is really straight out of the psychoanalytic world, which was very narrow in its um, notion of what's going on in the room between therapist and client, right? Like that everything was to be regarded as, you know, a product of the client's neurosis and, and so if there are feelings happening between therapists and clients, somehow that's going to tell me about the client's neurosis, you know, uh, rather than two people actually having a relationship or even also, oh my God, the therapist's neurosis. I mean, you know, all of that's also in the room. And, and so, um, I find that language is just, it, it, I do use those words too, because it's what people understand. I, I don't like that language. And, and recently, like in contemporary psychoanalysis and that relational psychoanalysis, there's a, a real move towards really much more rich vocabularies of therapist-client interaction and, uh, that, that doesn't really use this transference, counter-transference frame at all, and just talks about what feelings are coming up, what processes are emerging in each person, and how are those interacting, and how can those be creatively in, engaged and responsibly engage, like the sex thing, your Eros thing, for instance. Like, you know, um, there's a great book called What Therapists Don't Talk About and Why. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it's my favorite book. When I teach ethics classes, I, t- I use that book.
0: <laughs> that sounds <laughs> it's, amazing. <laughs> it's,
1: just, it's really, it's like, and it's just a bunch of questions and, um, and, uh, things, it's written by this guy, Kenneth Pope, and, and he's done all this research and talks about how that in all these cases where therapists and client end up acting out sexually and moving into that, they weren't talk the therapist was not talking about their own sexual feelings, like to, a cl- to, to other, other therapists or to even to the client in the right, you know, in the right situation, you might do that. Um, but whatever the case that like, there's just an immediate tendency of like, Oh no, I'm not supposed to feel that. So you just kind of like put it away, put it away, put it away. And then suddenly you're in a total, you know, acting out situation. It's just dissociation basically. And so, you know, this need to be circulating with these questions or talking about them uh, and, and um, not being afraid of that energy. You know, it's, it's like, I think, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work recently with like day and night as sort of concepts in, in traditional astrology and, um, to me, the day tries to like keep the night out of the session, you know, like we just got to do, you know, (laughs) therapy in the sunshine. Um, but, but actually these, and and we can be afraid of like, what will happen if we let the night in, you know, like where where will we be taken? It could be overwhelming. Um, but actually what we see is that when people are willingly go into the night, it, it is so enriching and so powerful and actually does not tend to be um, destructive, or you know, doesn't tend to kill the the um, the the frame or kill the container. It actually enriches and strengthens the container of the work. So I, I find that explorations of um, of erotic feelings in therapy, which is how I would like to call it, rather than transference countertransference, just talk about like erotic feelings in therapy. You could look at the use of calling it transference countertransference as very defensive on the part of the therapist because therapists aren't supposed to have feelings about their clients one way or another. It's kind of like how parents aren't supposed to have a favorite child. Um, but guess what <laughs> they do, uh, you know, and you have your feelings you have. And so part of it is like, is there a way to talk about feelings towards clients and both with the client, but also in your own you know, thinking, uh, or consulting or whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of in favor of, of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think like also the just sort of rejecting like pathologizing things in a certain way. I mean, I had this moment, <laughs> this personal story. So like I've dated older men forever and mm. I I hadn't until recently sort of thought through that in like a psychoanalytic way. Um, mm. And I thought that because the relationships didn't turn out well, that perhaps that fact in and of itself was why. Um, and, and everyone would sort of laugh that, you know, oh, you have daddy issues. Like I was really close to my dad, my dad's gay is my best friend. Um, so I was like, I don't think that's it. My dad was super present. And, and it occurred to me that like, oh, perhaps the reason I, this is the case is because the person who I felt like most understood me and respected me was this older man. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and to sort of just be like, well, why do I have to say that that's wrong? Because it was a pattern Mm -hmm. that was created in my childhood. If I can, Mm. right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Like if I can just sort of embrace that as a fact and Mm -hmm. realize where it came from and be aware of it, then the sort of reiteration or pattern of it is not necessarily.
1: Oh yes. I'm with (laughs) you. This is actually very relevant to like a lot of work with like, um like bdsm sexuality and stuff like that like there's a like just as i i'm I'm not saying those are the connected you know but i just mean in terms of like one of the things you'll often hear people say is like well i don't want my sexuality to be um a result of my trauma or something like that and and so first of all just say i'm not in any way saying that bdsm is always about trauma it definitely is not but also, I'm kind of saying, if it is, is that what the you know is that a problem? You know, like that's. Guess what? Everybody's coming to sexual experience with a set of experiences that have shaped how it goes. And if it's a creative exchange that you like and enjoy, it. I don't. I. I would not call it inherently pathological. In fact, I'd say, wow, what an incredibly creative way that your psyche is working with what you're working with. I mean, like that is not not everybody needs to come to therapy to work out their trauma. Some people are going to do it in all sorts of different ways or you don't need to. Um, and even like work it out is probably not the right frame. So I think I know what you mean by this. It's like really um, so what if, if you, if you do a thing or because of your past in some way, I mean, we are creatures in the, in time. That's how we live. Most of, you know, most of us are living in linear time in a, in terms of how we, Move through the world, even if we know it's not an actual thing. <laughs> um, so, we are going to naturally be living in ways that are molded by what's happened before. And to me, the question is is it life enhancing or is it life destroying? That's my biggest question about anything. And even if it's life destroying, we have, we have to kind of expand our frame of what that even means. But um, the, to me, I want to know does it increase the circulation of arrows, increase my own complexity my own experience of myself does it increase that or does it contract that um and and that's how i'm going to think about is this something i want more of or not 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 does it seem like it's probably because of my father or does it seem like i mean you know that doesn't seem to matter until it matters right until until you feel like oh this is in the way of me having my story playing and you know further out you know something like that
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it relates to what you talk about a lot, which I think was like totally like life changing for me to think about this, about how if we look at this whole process as uh, the goal being depth and not progress. um, Yeah. Right. So it's like if only the goal is to learn more about yourself and the thing, not necessarily to move out of it or to change it. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: And because we are so daytime in this progress, 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 and evolution—all these words, which and some of them can sound more conscious, right? Like evolution—that sounds really, um, you know, uh, consciousness-oriented. But to me, that just sounds like one more round of like, you better get better. You know, you're 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 not you're not as far along as you could be. Um, and uh, yeah, that thing that I said—I uh, think that might have been that eighth house talk at Norvik. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I said but you know, James Hillman is the, is one of the people who really framed it that way that I encountered, you know, who was kind of a post Jungian archetypal astrolog- you know, or, or, uh, psychologist. And, um, and he talked about this idea about, you know, the depth. I mean, this is more of a nighttime way of thinking, you know, that we want to become deeper. And I would say want to like experience more of our complexity more of our multidimensionality. you know we want more and more of our stories to get to be told and experienced um i, I tend to think of life as like you know the play of the divine in in, in incarnation and, and like so i just want to get more and more interesting and and more and more complex and multidimensional. and i tend to find that when that happens uh i personally suffer less i mean i i personally feel more uh, alive and in the world and and that is not about uh, progress. I, you know, it's so deep in our consciousness, like with you know, this idea of you're trying to get somewhere, that you're not okay where you are now and go somewhere else um, versus like really, really deepening your experience of where you are right now. Uh, and sometimes that means that when you do that, you will go to another thing. You know what I mean? Like but it'll be more organic. It won't be like, oh, I should be another way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like I, at least personally, and I feel like I've seen this reflected with other people too. There's like, I feel like I need to satiate my desire to like move. Right. And I, and I don't think that's necessarily in a forward direction, but there's this Mm -hmm. idea of like that humans are constantly Mm -hmm. moving and cycling Mm -hmm. and that like, there's like a hunger there to get something. And if that Mm -hmm. hunger can just be like death, right. Instead of getting better that, like that mm-hmm. works. And, and, and I think mm-hmm. for a while I thought, well, you know, to sort of, um, I mean, if you look at this in a collective way, I feel like this has affected us really negatively as well to assume that where we're going is a better place. Right. And yeah. not yeah. like, maybe we need to evolve backwards. <laughs> <Yeah>. um,
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm that People are calling evolution. Maybe it's just change. <laughs> like, like, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean things are getting better or higher or, you know, and in the world of astrology and like the way that, it is connected to say new age and metaphysical communities that often really seem to need seem to feel that they need a narrative that says everything's evolving and getting higher and better and um i i don't feel the need to think that way in order to do what i think i'm here you know what i'm kind of doing like i i don't feel like um I, I just uh, I, I just found I feel a lot better when I'm not thinking in terms of progress and linear and moving forward I I feel much freer to think of participation you know as, as my desire not 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 progress you know, participation in more of life and and experiencing more of that and, and deepening my experience of it um, versus trying to make something happen right know I, it, 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 it and I think that's a, a huge violence that a lot of us are doing to ourselves and then to our clients is like, you know, we need to make this happen. You need to do this next thing. Um, that's why like my astrology is not prescriptive. It's, it's descriptive. You know, it's like I, I, for me, I want to just sort of offer more ways to see and then people do what they do with that. I don't want to say, well, you know, you're over here and you need to go to your north node or you're, you're and you need to you know uh, deal with your 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 you know uh, contrary to Seth Malefic or you know wh- whatever the thing is uh, I just kind of want to say here's some more of, of what I see with you and here's you know and, and then we do what we do you know what whatever emerges I trust like like as a teacher of therapists and, and particularly with therapists, I don't teach any particular, like a lot of times therapists will be well what do I do if right like you know uh and and I don't do algorithm therapy you know like if this then that I mean I just want to really deepen the ability of the therapist that I'm working with and and mentoring I want to deepen their ability to see I want them to be able to see in all sorts of dimensions I want them to see through the astrological lens through the diagnostic lens through the Enneagram through the Myers-Briggs you know name your thing like like through all sorts of myths and stories, I feel that the more we are able to see, then, then naturally the next thing will happen. There's no I don't, I don't train any therapist I work with in what to do. It's more like I want to help them see more. Um, and that's what astrology is like to me, the most endless repository I know of all these different systems. It's just like endless lenses, endless. I mean, kind of back to what you said about disillusionment uh and about like our perspective on our chart changing it's a wonderful thing i mean it's hard to go through when you kind of feel like oh i've got a story that's really feeling like this is a good one Uh, (laughs) and then you're like ah no that story's not even close to real or you know doesn't suit me right now but that's the beauty of astrology you know unlike any other thing i know i'm sure there's other stuff but it's endless in its abilities to give us new ways to see and 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 talk about our experience with each other.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> I'd love for you to talk a little bit more and elaborate on the distinction between um like saying someone's a narcissist versus like running narcissistic process um, um and yeah. and sort of like um what the benefit of that is and then also how it is tied into seeing the chart as this like ever evolving story.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah um yeah so that was something that i found myself using that language a few years ago the, the language of um of, of process versus identity is, is maybe the, a good way to say it right like so in other words rather than saying a person is a narcissist you just say they're running narcissistic process or you could say i guess narcissistic process is running them um but the idea here is that um as soon as we i, I think of like verb and a noun would be a good way to describe it. it's like you know, that, you know, um, that what we call personality itself or really any psychological, see, process, that's right. Any psych- psychological thing is actually just a verb that's happening, right? Like people move around the world and engage in narcissistic psychodynamics. And when you do that a lot, when that's kind of like the one you do the most, let's say, we can really start to think like, oh, that's who you are. You know, I can kind of like, you know, And I think that the, the, the mind, and particularly the therapeutic and astrologer mind kind of sometimes want the convenience of being able to say, this is this. And that's that, like that's an identity. Like, you know, it's hard to leave it as just a verb, you know, it can be, um, but, but but yet if we are willing to do that, we're also then introducing the possibility that, and remembering that everybody can run anything, you know, nobody's just one process. It's just like in the chart, like, Rather than saying, I am a Leo, you can say, I run Leo process, you know, I, 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 you know, this, this goes through me, or, um, or you could say these stories play themselves out in my life, you know, whatever that might be. It's just, to me, it's a much more dynamic and, and action and, and, and real thing than sort of solidifying this into an identity like this person is this, um, uh, you even see it like on the other side of the narcissist thing, with there's, there's this huge thing about being empaths, you know, like everybody's an empath right now. And, uh, <laughs> and to me, empathy is, empathy is a thing you do. It's not a thing you are. Um, and actually, ironically enough, many of the self-declared empaths are some of the greatest narcissists. <laughs> yeah. You see plenty of narcissism in that. In fact, saying to someone, I am an empath, is actually a narcissistic action like it because it's sort of saying I'm identifying myself with a particular thing and that's what narcissistic process does it's like a, a a way of saying I'm this and presenting it to the world and asking the world to validate yes you're that you know and it's a beautiful thing i mean narcissistic process is actually a lot of times i think how we claim certain aspects of self like we start to feel like oh i'm this thing and then we start to push it out into the world and say, look, this is me now. And then enough people say, yeah, that's you. And you kind of get to feel like, oh yeah, that's me. And you might be able to just internalize it and move on, or you might need endless validation, which is where I think the story gets stuck on repeat, you know? And th- and that's usually who we would call a narcissist is someone who's on repeat with like insisting that this image is me and then insisting that others validate this image. Um, and I can't really do anything else then we often say that person i would say that person is sort of like hijacked by narcissistic process Um, but another person might say that person is a narcissist but to me there's real power in keeping it in verb form because that means every single interaction is an opportunity to do a different thing and and when i sit with someone who uh, is really running a process very compulsively again and again I know every time they're running it, there's an opportunity for me to respond in in a novel way. I don't have to just move into the usual responses. Um, Whereas it's very static and and fixed and stuck to sort of decide this is what someone is. Um, And same with the chart, as you were just saying, and you asked me to link it to that part that, you know, the evolutionary, like the fact that the chart is continuously, uh, the sky is continuously moving and changing in in your own experiences um is to me a very similar thing where we're not sort of freeze framing and saying this is it you know this is this is you um we're acknowledging that i mean these things are constantly moving and changing and um which is also hard if you're a therapist or an astrologer and you are committed to being this is maybe the biggest thing about this we have to wonder why do astrologers and therapists want to do that like put a noun on somebody, you know, like sort of you are this, you know, and I think that has to do with our own investment. I'm this, you know, and and I don't want to freeze frame. I don't want to lose what I've decided I am lovely, a non judgmental therapist or whatever you think you are. Um, So in order to hold mine tight, I've got to kind of tighten yours too versus both of us being in flux and very likely discovering things about ourselves that neither of us knew at the start. Like to me, I, I, my favorite therapy is when I'm really being pressed to reconsider who I am. Um, it's the hardest and I I don't think it's constantly what's happening in therapy, but it's frequent.
0: Yeah. Can we talk about this too in the context because I feel like this is so prevalent for, I feel like I've, I know, every person I know ha- has a story around perhaps it's this like narcissism process, uh, narcissistic process being reflected by people saying you are that within the context of like astrology, religious gurus of all kinds. Like I'd love if you have insight on that archetypally because I feel like there's a lot of really smart, empathetic, um, (gasps) intelligent people who get sucked into this whirlwind and there's this dance that goes on between <laughs> this sort of mm-hmm. like narcissistic guru personality and the mm-hmm. follower whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I see that happen a lot too. Um, gosh, there's, yeah. I, I mean, um, well, one of the the stories I think about, you know, is the Leo story. And, and, um, and then by the way, this is not saying, oh, Leos are the narcissists. Yeah. Um, they already get enough of that from others, (laughs) 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 but I think the story is really a good story. And it also, it's a story that applies to the sun as well as the ruler of Leo. So we all have the sun in our charts and I think maybe that helps to expand this a little bit, but you know, in that story very briefly, right. The, the story is is the story of Hercules and then the man lion and this whole thing where Hercules goes and kills this lion. And then, the most curious thing about that story for me as a in my view is you know that he takes the mantle of the lion eventually and wraps it over himself and he wears it for the entire rest of his life and in fact he dies when he takes it off um and it's to me what it is is like the the man lion was this like kind of pure archetype thing literally the story says that the the lion was like fell from the moon i mean that's about as archetypal as you know like this lion just fell off the side of the moon onto earth and you know, here it was in all its primal quality. And it was three times as big as any other lion. And its pelt was in, impenetrable, which is crucial for this story because so then after Hercules does kill it and figures out and he puts it on himself and wears it for the rest of the story, kind of like when you wear an animal that you've killed or you, you carry the heart of your enemy, you know, that you slayed. know, it's like this mana, you know, gives you like some raw power. You get the feeling that he's, identifying with the archetype. He's like, this is me, I am this. And, 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 and is in fact impenetrable. Like you can't get in. It's just like when people are running narcissistic process and they're like, this is what I am. Then that's all they want to be seen as. If you look at like Greek art of Hercules, um, you know, out in the world, uh, you will see like, he's always got this lion thing on. And in fact, something when you first look at it, that's kind of what you see is the lion. It even looks like it's swallowing him in a way, the way he's wearing it in many of these phases and you kind of have to wonder who won this thing after all, right? I mean, the lion is actually getting the thing. And I think it's similar, like with a So if you think of a guru identity as, your, as the mantle that these guys are putting on and, 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 um, and everyone's like, yeah, you are that. And that's what they did with Hercules. He's just a hero. He's not a man anymore. He's a hero. And that's that. Like, and in fact, when he takes the mantle off, he dies. It's almost like he hasn't cultivated his ordinary humanness at all. And so once the extraordinary is peeled off, there's nobody under there. You know, it's, it's like, he can't handle everyday life, which is, you know, often true when someone's really been successful in convincing the world that this is who I am. And, and of course that plays into the longings that we all have of some wise person who, who, who always knows, you know, and so the, 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 the willingness of people to, to say to the person, yes, you are this, you are the one who knows, you're the spiritual leader. Um, you know, this thing. And one of the things I'll just say, this is uh, those things I've said before, but this is, I I find like, a lot of what is going on in that situation uh, as I've come to see this is that, um, We have in our astrology worlds and metaphysical worlds and all that, you know, a a group of people who I would say are highly intuitive and quite brilliant and can sort of say this really brilliant thing and really, you know, um, and then they also have personal charisma. And so they have a really interesting combination of intuition and charisma. And the intuition gives the appearance initially of great wisdom and depth, you know, because it's almost like they can see into things and and see the full nature of it in that moment and say it. And it gives you the feeling that they really grok the whole terrain, but actually intuitive process doesn't do that. It's almost like intuitive process is like when you're on a boat, you know, and it's almost like you you send a a, a telescope down and you see down into the depth and you take a snapshot and you say that and everybody's like, wow, it's amazing. Like, and they assume that you live down in the deep water where they are, but actually no, you know, you actually you don't. They don't have the time spent in the human labor of being underwater and thinking and feeling and going through it and all that. But they appear to be incredibly wise because they can take these, like, snapshots. That's what intuitive process does. I, and you and I are very intuitive. I'm, I'm confident of that. But um, that's not enough if you really are um, going to have a sustained, you know, uh, depth, it's not very depthful. Intuition by itself is not depthful. It just it just takes snapshots of depth. Death takes time, it takes humanness, it takes feelings, it takes vulnerability. It, it, it isn't done like that. And and I feel there are many, many people walking around who are very intuitive and then they also have personal charisma. And that combination uh, creates fantastic astrological careers <laughs> or spiritual leader careers. Um, which are really uh, kind of quite superficial. When you scratch it, there's not much there, and 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 it will actually make terrible errors in judgment and in lack of empathy because it's so caught up in its own uh, press. Um, so that's one of the things that's really been on my mind lately. Is this is that in, you know what I want, and someone who's going to help me out is that they've really gone through lots of vulnerability and they still are vulnerable and they still don't know. Um, I trust that a zillion times more. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's interesting because I wanted to talk more about the whole, uh, I think also at Norwalk, you talked a bit about like looking at masculine feminine as day night, which I thought was awesome because I feel like I feel into those things energetically more than anything else, especially when it comes to words. Um, yeah. But as you were speaking, it was interesting to think about like Leo and the sun and that, yeah. uh, as that sort of guru figure and that yeah. often, I think these things are playing out as like this male authority figure and yeah. a woman follower. Um,
1: right.
0: do you think that has something to do with it? That like the relationship between sun, moon, day, night, and this, like, masculine, feminine thing that's happening?
1: <laughs> I do, yeah. I tend to think that the 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 guru um, process, when someone's really identified with that process, like, that that's who I am, you know, that I, I have, I'm a knowledge giver, or, you know, whatever that is, I tend to think that's a highly organized by the day sect if we think about astrologically if you think of this planets the Sun and Jupiter and Saturn you know they're sort of the leaders they wise old men and, and they're all male notably right I mean in the traditional pantheon um, the Sun is the center of everything and the, the things orbit around it. Um, it it feels very solar and very daytime oriented even if they are speaking of, of the mysteries of the night and all that but in terms of the processes that are running, They feel very day. And I think that what often happens is that those of us who are perhaps more night identified or tend to run more the night game, which is, you know, the moon, which is about emotional vulnerability and need, uh, and nurture and Venus, which is, uh, very much about, you know, attraction and connection and, uh, and Mars, which is about like the passions, you know, those of us who are more night identified and I'm one of those people as a rule, not always, but, um, so the night can feel awfully overwhelming at times, especially in a culture where you think you should be more together, you know, uh, this is the, 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 we value the day in this culture hugely. And the day things are kind of coherent and organized and this makes sense. And that's not bad. And, um, it's all laid out. So if you tend to be more in the night, you, you do sometimes in the middle of that, just wish that somebody just could hold up the flashlight and tell you everything. You know, it's a huge moment. Like it's a, it's a powerful fantasy. I've been there. I mean, those times when just totally can't see and feel overwhelmed by how much is coming. And, and you just really, there's a fantasy in the psyche that I think is so powerful that, you know, someone will hold the light and you will go towards the light and, 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 um, it's totally understandable. And I think actually at times we, we can be that for each other, right? I mean, there are moments when clients come in totally shredded by night, you know, night can be very dismembering and, uh, they definitely do need me to sort of step in. But the, the key is that I know I'm just stepping in We're this is not real in any, like, this is who we are. We're going to play a process called the client night and Jason day. And we're going to kind of run that process a little bit because it seems to be what the story wants next. But but we're not going to get stuck in Jason's the light and the client is, you know, the vulnerable knight. And that's what you see in these guru-devotee situations. You know, why is it that none of the devotees ever become a guru? You know, like, what's going on here, you know? And besides the obvious answer of misogyny, which is definitely one of the answers, <laughs> it's also just because it's like both people get kind of attached to a particular role configuration, you know, and um, and I think a lot of these these guru oriented people would be terrified if night, if they were stressed into night, they want to really stay in this. I have the answers, you know, it's very Jupiterian, Saturnian. but we should all get to play that role. I love big consciousness. I'm, I'm more, I tend to speak like night is better, but I think that's just because of where we are these days. Like the day is so dominant uh, and, 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 um, and has been hooked to masculinity and is hooked to patriarchal you know, consciousness as a result. But it's like, um, I, 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 I think we can step in there, but to me, it's when people get role locked or role fixated. And that's what Mercury didn't like, you know, like as soon as you sort of lock in Mercury's there to kind of like tickle you and make you, you know, <laughs> you know mess you up a little. And I, 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 it's like that, um, Jesuit phrase that I love so much that I think is part of my work is, um you, you must comfort the afflicted, um, and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> <That's
0: great. laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in terms of like afflicting the comfortable too, I guess in the inverse sense, like I'd love to talk more broadly about the whole masculine feminine day night thing, because I think it's probably my biggest source of interest and has been for my entire life. And I started this uh, podcast simultaneous to like the whole me too thing going on. Oh, right. And and I found myself um, uh, not really sitting within any camp that I felt like was being publicly expressed. And, mm-hmm. and I think where I was frustrated was that I felt like I was very conscious of my own participation in a lot of these types of dynamics, right? So mm-hmm. like the the dance can't happen and unless both people are dancing. And so sure I was, you know, naive perhaps, and um, uneducated about my own patterns and process. Uh, But at the same time, it's like, I was an adult who could make conscious decisions and just opt out of the whole thing. And I kept feeding it and kept going. So in terms of the masculine feminine thing, like where I'm frustrated by the, um, not to say we shouldn't hold people accountable but the the constant sort of pointing fingers are like, that's the problem, that's the problem, that's the problem, and it's not me. Um, right. And I'm yeah. curious how you see like, like how how could we look at coming to terms with and um, rejoining this the sexes in a way by considering day and night?
1: Um, when you say, let me just ask a question. Yeah rejoin the sexes
0: i I mean like because i feel like there's this war of the sexes right now that's like you know when mm -hmm. i see things like the future is female i'm like can we both be here like mm -hmm. you know like like this Um. like that um like that feminism has often taken on a um an opinion about how masculinity or men are bad
1: Mm -hmm. um
0: and and i feel like by by looking at this in a different context like as mm-hmm. in energetically that we can mm-hmm. see that in a little bit of a unique way because i don't think that's going to solve much of anything
1: yeah i <laughs> I, I i think i right am with you and I, I i i find that like um it's interesting i'll just kind of share my process with it because i don't yeah. know the, you know uh, a, a clear um path forward about it but i will say that like for me there were moments in my life where the notion of masculine and feminine were, well, first of all, they early in my life. They were, I would say those concepts were incredibly harmful to me. The way that they were deployed in both cases was horrible, you know, and, um, and was used against me. And then I saw it being used against everybody. So I, I felt like these are really dangerous. Um, then there was a time in my own sort of, sort of spiritual life where, um, for instance, it was really important to sort of say this notion of the feminine, and really claim it and enjoy it and feel it all through me. And, and, and it meant something to me. I might have trouble reconstructing what it meant, but it, it did me, it felt alive and real. And then there was also a really important period of my life of really identifying with the masculine and really feeling like a sort of initiation into my male body. And, and this, these were really very, very powerful things for me. Um, And and yet over time, what also happened is that now those concepts, they feel so unuseful to me. They just don't feel alive. They're no longer erotic. They're stuck. Like they just feel it. it, Give me any adjective that's used for feminine and I can use how it's also masculine. You know, like it's not just Earth and Father Sky. It's also Father Earth and Mother Sky. You know, it, it, it doesn't for whatever reason at this time, it has no erotic purchase for me. Like it just doesn't it doesn't feel alive and it actually feels incredibly like in our astrology world. It feels like it just, it's an invitation to all sorts of misunderstanding and essentializing back to men and women, you know, like, like, like getting back to female and male, even when people are like, Oh no, 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 there's the divine, you know, <laughs> yeah. feminine and the masculine. And those are like, anytime I hear the, the, I get worried, right? Like the feminine, the masculine, it, it, it again for me. There was a time when that was so full of life and meaning, and it, it, and it gave me a way to experience more of who I am. At this point, it doesn't seem like it gives me much. I don't think it gives much to the astrology world. I mean, or the you know, or the larger world right now to be using those terminologies feels like um, they don't feel creative to me anymore. They feel like like they just are um, full of 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 strife and um and they oh here's the thing what i feel is is that masculine and feminine at this point for me and i sense for the culture is now something that just totally narrows our capacity to imagine and i give something up as soon as i sense that that's what it does like what i want is something that seems to enlarge my ability to imagine there was a time when masculine and feminine in my personal process really enlarged my ability to imagine who i am and who people are in the world and it increased my imaginative capacities. At this point, I, it doesn't in any way do that. It, every time I hear those words, they it, it just seem like they constrain my ability to imagine. And so I think for each person to wonder about, is this really making me have a larger capacity to see and imagine, or is this actually narrowing it? And I think day and night are similar. Like at the moment, I sense that as I bring me, because I've kind of become a voice for that a little bit, you know, and um, I can feel how it feels to other people like it feels to me. It's sort of liberating. It gives you new imaginings, you know, because it it doesn't follow the masculine-feminine uh, binarism in the same way. It kind of does, but it also doesn't, which is just, just right, you know, for kind of messing with us and, <laughs> you know, making you feel comfortable enough to experiment but not, like, overwhelmed with the differences. Um, so right now, day and night feels super liberatory to me and, like, a way that's really creative and gives us some new ways to imagine our situation. Um, But I can imagine when that will also, in fact, I've even experienced talking to people about this. There's a quick rush to concretize, like this is day and night. And now we have to be both. And we have to like, there's agendas start coming in, like, oh, we've got to like, synthesize them, you know, it, it loses and i'm like ah i don't want to do this like i i just want to have fun you know and 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 not be bored and you know I, I i'm a Hermes kid you know like i and so to me that's the the big value of the night day is that at this moment it seems like it's a it really it really um sparks our imaginations together i think it it, it has mine like it, it, when i discovered this just a few years ago with sect and you know the ancient stuff um I, I feel like it's really given me lots of imaginative material and it it's freeing me and it's helping me be more of who i am and i think when i share it with people it does a similar thing and gets us past some of the loggerheads that you were talking about like that 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 we see configured in the larger culture around masculine than, you know like that that just seems to have hit its imaginative limits for the moment. Like it, I mean, there's definitely a moment when it was so creative to say the future is female. Like, I do think that has like, you know, if you think of like second wave feminist things, stuff like that, it has some power in it. It's exciting. Like just because of how utterly opposite it was to what, you know what I mean? But but now I agree with you. If I hear something like that, I'm like, Oh my God, that sounds so boring. Like, you know, there's just no life in that. Like to me at least it feels like um, stuck in a very binaristic formula. Um, so I, I don't know if any of that speaks to what yeah. you're, but, but, but that's kind of where, yeah, that's kind of where I go with this stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And and I think, I mean, I, I find, I've found myself too in the past and I think we do this collectively as a culture. <laughs> as like one thing isn't working. And so we take the, you know, the oppositional Mm -hmm. standpoint of the 180 Mm -hmm. degrees. And I actually think like learning astrology was something that sort of helped me with that because obviously you're not supposed to live on any one side of the chart. Like you're supposed to find this sort of nuanced gray area in the middle. Um, Or or in all the extremes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, (laughs)
1: Speaking for myself.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, and, and I think it goes back to what you were saying too You know, I think I've been someone who from a very young age was very conscious of um, labels and their meaning as being (sighs) something that was, you know, constructed and certainly not static and ever evolving. Like, I I studied um, gender and sexuality in school. And I remember like finally, like really understanding the concept of like, oh, well the term homosexuality didn't, didn't exist, for example, when Oscar Wilde lived. So he, how can we, we can't really call him homosexual, right? Like that's mm. our uh, modern yes. projected. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Um, and I think for a lot of people though, it's like, I think we have a very human desire to fit into a community mm. and to identify with others. And so I think there's this poll that at least I've seen where like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm fitting into that and I want to, you know, rebel, but yet I still Mm. sort of find my way back into this communal identified space. That's
1: a great point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because it does have,
1: it does help us in a way, you know, sometimes it can help us feel more coherent and safe. Sorry.
0: (laughs) It's fine.
1: (laughs) I, I, um, yeah, it can help us with that. You know, it's like, it can feel, and I, I, um, yeah, I, I think even with things like that, like, you know, um, as a, as a person who identifies as a gay man, that's kind of an identity that I have been holding for a really long time and still feels creative to me. Like, um, it still feels like there's more about that, that I don't know what that is. And so it doesn't feel like a limiting one as yet. I mean, it may still, um, but it's like, um, that ability to, uh, when, when is it, Yeah. Again, when is it, or, or, or as someone with a bipolar diagnosis, so I have a bipolar diagnosis and, uh, and I agree with it. It feels an accurate description of my brain and how it works. And, and yet there's a way that, that one could hold that diagnosis as like a thing, like a, this is the truth. This is what you are like, you know, um, and it's kind of on top of you or there's a way that you could receive it. And it becomes a way to even more creatively and complexly imagine yourself, you know, and, and that's what it is for me these days. Actually, I, I'm probably not feeling as identified with it as I happen, but it, it has, a. Um, I I just feel like with astrology too, like, you know, if I say you're a Leo, I want to know how that affects you. Does that make you feel bigger and more excited? Like, cause there's a billion different Leo ways to be, or does it feel like, Oh no, you know, you just now reduced me. And, um, it just feels like, again, again, my question is how to, how to expand what we can imagine, you know, uh, and um, and any kinds of innovations in our art. Also, I want to I want to see them get um, wider in that way.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think that's why I love the mythology angle to all of this because it's like here's one thing, Leo, let's say, and here are three different stories that can be associated yeah. that, and three different ways to express that, right. and perhaps you do, we all are doing all of them in different ones at different times, but there's such like a, if you're willing to sort of step into that shaky, earthquakey ground of things changing and evolving within yourself, and I think it actually can be really freeing, which is uh, interesting, because I think people avoid it because they're so afraid of what that might reveal. Um,
1: oh, totally. I mean, yeah. it's scary. And, uh, and, 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 also it's interesting too because even with it, like, the, like let's say yeah there's like these three stories but then any person approaching those three stories could go in very different ways with them you know like so mm,
0: yeah i get
1: my webinars and my teaching i obviously i share the stories and i also share my interpretive journey with them and what i how i think they speak to things that i've seen in myself and others um but but what i deeply wish to teach really beyond that content which i think my content is good i think those stories and those ideas and interpretation are it's actually good material in and of itself. But really what I hope that people, um, uh, get to experience with my work is I, I I hope that it develops our imaginative faculty so that we can all go into the myth and start thinking and dreaming more, more interestingly, you know, more completely. And so like one of my favorite things is when, you know, we just share the story and, and people are invited to say what they see in it or where they go with it. You know, and, um, my, 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 my the wellspring of my work these days, it's always my client work. And you know, it's always my one-on-one client work. It, but also I have it locally here in Santa Fe, you know, I do a, uh, I teach every other week I have for like five years and I have about like 20, 25 people who've been along for a lot of that time. And, um, one of the ways we work is with a lot of like astrodoma where people take the roles of planets in the chart. And what I love about that is that um, we, we, we enter the myth and we don't know where it's going to go. And it's every person's own, where they're led is where it's going to go. And I continuously learn from that. That's like a huge wellspring of learning for me because you know, there's so many ways to end into these stories and they take us so many places. And um, if you can suspend your insecurity or fear about oh my god where might this go which i have to do routinely because i'm the quote-unquote director right i'm kind of like directing the psychodrama kind of but when you're directing it you're you're what you really want is you want to just help you want to be a creative uh follower of the process right you're trying to creatively follow the process even though often i will want to control it just like everybody else Mm -hmm. But but if I can let it go, it it's like it it teaches me so many more things. It opens up so many more possibilities. Like um and that's what I want when I look in a chart with a client, I don't want to actually simplify it and say, okay, here's what it is. I want to actually complexify it and say, here's all the different things it could be. And, um and, and you know, if I have a problem as a teacher, it's probably that I don't sometimes say, Okay, yeah, we also need to simplify sometimes just to feel, you know, like we figured something out. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I uh, I agree. I think I'm definitely more inclined to. I, I, oh, I mean, I have a Libra moon, so I'm just like constantly like weaving between both. But what about this? Yeah, Yeah, I read somewhere once like someone said something about like (laughs) that, such a, a Libra, you know, thing around not even like being invested in presenting the devil's advocate point of view necessarily, but just like putting it in there as, as play almost to kind of, and I related yeah. to that so much. It's just fun, I think. And, and yeah, like to realize that the, the answer is often the question. Um,
1: yes. And, and, and the questions, uh, you know, like, and they are in, yeah, I'm, I'm very Libra. I have like four planets in Libra, so I'm Libra sun. So I'm yeah. <laughs> I sure, I think all of our, notions of things probably can be seen in the you know like that like the unwillingness to settle into a particular viewpoint <laughs> like, and the tendency to frustrate people when they try to pin us down you know i'm like well I well i haven't ever never stopped you know kind of when i'm <laughs> literally saying to you right now right like Masculine and feminine, totally real, amazing. Yeah. Masculine and feminine, utterly too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. A horrible thing, you know, yeah. and it all feels true to me. It really does.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I have it too. My uh my ascendant <laughs> is opposite, my moon and Aries, and I have Mars and Aries too. So it's wow. just like my own desire to like identify, not identify, define, deconstruct yeah.
1: Oh, that's, Sounds wow, amazing. that is about it. I can feel it now that you name it, I can kind
0: of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, um, I'm going to let you go now, even though I probably could talk to you for quite a uh, number of more hours. Maybe we'll do it yeah, again Yeah, I like we're just getting going. <laughs> I know, I know, that is the sort of bummer. I feel like most people don't have the capacity to listen to things for much more than an hour, and I get tired, but it does, like, you get started at the very end. It's like, damn. Yeah. Um, uh, so, the last two things, um, uh, where can people find you? and then I always ask all of my guests if they could recommend you know this is a slightly cruel question, but one book to the audience, what might that be, and it can be about this conversation or just a book that was really influential to you in your life
1: okay, um yeah, so the book I would choose um I feel like I say this one, I was trying to think of like what you. The- Um, I, one of them that I love is, is Roberto Colasso. Uh, he's an Italian philosopher and, um, he's written an amazing book called the marriage of Cadmus and harmony. It's my favorite book on mythology. It's, it's a, it's a book that I go back to whenever I just need to like feel like if I'm working on a project, it's not that I'm looking for content. I just want to be with somebody who is, whose capacity to imagine just seems so cool and, always links things I didn't expect. And it is about mytholo- Greek mythology, and but it, he's weaving between talking about the mythology to talking about the people who wrote it to talking about those of us in the modern world and how we read it. And he's just moving all over the place. You have to have a little bit, I think for it to really speak deeply, a, a little bit of background in Greek mythology is helpful, but but maybe not. I think it's pretty accessible in a weird way. Um, it's very nonlinear. You really could open it anywhere and just start going um i'm gonna say one more okay. <laughs> i have to because i was just thinking like there are two others one is
0: don say Mal- them all it's okay it's okay, okay <laughs> <laughs> I
1: bet, I bet i'm i not the only person who's no
0: cheating. <laughs> no i sort of like when people cheat too so it's why I, I would cheat so i get it
1: <laughs> so another one is don Shad. uh he's a Jungian, and he wrote a book called trauma and the soul um it's an amazingly beautiful book about um mythology and or not about mythology but about um story and myth and also about trauma and how it affects people and and their healing from it and it's really what i love about it is that it beautifully intersperses his work with clients or patients and storytelling and sort of psychological theory and it it's just a gorgeous and very tender book and yet also really just so useful uh and it's another one where i'll just go and read some of it just to sort of um, immerse myself in, in a really rich experience. And then another one also like that, this is much more cycle, you know, but it's a Philip Bromberg, uh, who's a real inspiration of mine from the relational analytic perspective. Um, yeah, has a great book called, um, uh, what is, oh, it's so funny. I don't know what the title is now. I can't remember it, but it's, um, it's uh, the, the, the subtitle is Studies in Dissociation and Clinical Process. Um, and, uh, in the title, is so clever, it's, it's really, I guess I'm associated. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> but oh, oh, standing in the spaces. That's what it's oh, called. Okay. The spaces. And that's referring to the idea of standing in the spaces between solid ego states within the psyche and like getting in, like being in the, in between of those states and oh, I love that. a hilarious writer and very, you feel his clinical sensitivity and, and and his scintillating intelligence. And it, it, he's hard to read in a way, but uh, really a total favorite of mine. Like one of the things I'm planning to do over the next year or two is actually I want to do a, a sequence of webinars or something where we talk about thinking the the relationship of astrologer client and therapist client. Like how do we conceptually, how do we use our own astrology pantheon to do that? But also I'm going to pull in material like Philip Bromberg and others because they, you know, we really, um, could use a more sophisticated, complex way of thinking about this. You were really pointing to that earlier when we were talking about this of the transference frame as a description. So, um, I'm wanting to go there. So anyway, um, and then I can be found at jasonholly.net. Um, that's the easiest thing. Um, uh, and I have a lot of webinars on, I will say I have a lot of webinars on AstrologyUniversity.com. Um, so that's a place to find a lot of my work, but, um, other things are also on my website. That's net and and people can email me really for any reason. So
0: awesome. Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you. This is great. Thanks a lot. Hello again. Thank you for listening to that episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I uh, really cannot wait to meet up with Jason in person and hopefully have him on the show many more times. Um, today I'm going to play out with a song called Caves by Gregory Allen Isakoff. And I'm, when choosing a song for this episode, I was really actually shocked to realize that I've never played a Gregory Allen Isakoff song before, um, because I really like him. I would say he's probably in my top five, maybe artists. Um, I hate picking favorites. It's a Libra Moon thing, but if I had to choose, he'd be up there with an, with amongst a group. At the very least, um, he released an album called "Evening Machines." It was actually also very uh, close to the time that I released this pod podcast, close to the time that I finished up my astrology apprenticeship, and he released it during uh, Venus retrograde Venus went retrograde in Scorpio and Libra, and it was a hell of a time. Um, about relationships, especially about love, about comfort, about our belief and about ourselves and our core needs. Um, it was by far one of the most eventful and both beautiful and traumatic times of my life. Uh, this is like last fall and, uh, Gregory Alanisakoff I know, um, has gotten readings before. I know he's semi into astrology. And so we all sort of those of us who were into both his music and astrology sort of guessed that he specifically released the album during, uh, Venus retrograde for that reason. A lot of the songs on, uh, the album, uh, have references to astrology in the sky, um, Southern star. That was almost another song that I played on this show. Um, it was really hard to choose one. The whole album is great, Evening Machines, if you want to check it out. I uh, saw him play live at some point late last year, or early this year in Arizona. It was a great. Um, and this is a fucking great song, and it's especially great uh, related to the episode that I played today. Um, so many different themes, like, let's put all these words away, and... I think that those lyrics of the song are very experiential and visual. Um, like I used to love caves, stumble out into that big sky. Remember that bright hollow moon showed our insides on our outsides. It's just awesome. I can see that so clearly. And, and this is what I like about astrology. Like if I can just do astrology through music and sounds and feelings and energy, And put the words away as much as possible. That's the kind of belief system and spirituality I want to have. As intuitive and just feeling into it as possible. So highly recommend the whole album. Um, But if not, you can just enjoy this song too. Uh, And that's it. I will talk to you guys next week. Love you all.